Good afternoon, all. Uh, I, like the Minister of State, have to apologise because when I was asked to come and speak to you, I readily agreed, but I belong to the RUC George Cross Foundation, who have recently retired me for the fourth time, and uh, I'm being dined out this evening, which uh, any of you connected with military or semi-military or policing organizations, a drink or a meal is normally a good way to, for them to say farewell. So that has to start this evening at seven o'clock and I've been warned on the peril of my life or a further dismissal that I'll, I'll be in trouble. So uh, thank you for taking me first and I'm afraid I won't be able to stay to the end, but uh, if there are questions, I'll try and deal with them at the end of my presentation. Um, what I hope to do is talk a little about the formation of policing in Ireland, and uh, as the Minister for State said, policing is a very complex issue, many, many lures, and I could be here to this time next week talking about my particular interest, which is really about the living and working conditions. Because although people find it very easy to kick men in uniform, they are people. And it's about the people who delivered an essential service to the communities in Ireland that policing is about. Um, so if I may start, the formation of the constabulary started with the Peace Preservation Force uh, of 1814. This was a mobile force made up of ex-cavalrymen who were raised to suppress discontent in the counties. And a feature of that was that the pay for those men and the expenses was raised and paid for by the counties that they policed. So that should have sharpened people's mind, but it didn't. Uh, it's interesting from a perspective also that being cavalrymen, they wore capes, and that's where I believe that the constabulary and indeed on Garda Shia developed the habit of stripes inverted on the lower right arm but I see on Garda Shia in their wisdom have raised the stripes, uh, which is a deviation from the norm. Uh, this form of policing was not satisfactory and led in 1822 to the formation of the county constabulary, which uh, under the Act of Parliament reorganised the whole emphasis of policing and there were um, forces raised in parts of Ireland with separate training bases. But with the advent of Mr Drummond, who was the Chief Secretary for Ireland, they were amalgamated in 1836 and became a national force for Ireland. They were housed uh, under a new management structure at Phoenix Park, which until recently was also the training centre and headquarters for Angarda Siakana. Uh, and this was a very novel uh, building, specifically built 
to train and house the men, because they were all men, sorry ladies, uh, the RUC formed the ladies in 1943, considerably after the period. Although the first lady employed by the RIC happened to be the wife of a local sergeant in Cork and was paid two and sixpence a week, which was considerably less than her husband, but augmented their income. Anyway, the new structure uh, was that there was um, an inspector general who was charged with holding the force accountable and their training. Um, the new training depot was the envy of lots of organizations, and they had lots of people came and looked at the facilities. Um, they also developed a code of regulations, which was very important as far as policing was concerned. It was a common code. As I've said, it was a national force. Not only did it control the working arrangements, it controlled their off hours, it controlled their marriage arrangements, it controlled the whole of their life. And I'm told that the initial code was really quite small and with the agile mind of the police, it grew and grew and grew. And now, I think before the RUC changed, it had three volumes. Um, the new depot was, was, was charged with training both officers and men, and was responsible for developing a very unusual esprit de corps, which was very essential to the whole method of operation and the living arrangements for the constabulary. Because they were, when they came from the depot, they were scattered to stations throughout Ireland. And if you were for, from County Antrim, you weren't allowed to police in County Antrim. You were sent off to another part of Ireland, very often in the opposite direction. So that you had no friends, your friends were the police. You lived in the local barracks and you lived your life cheek by jowl with your colleagues. When you got married, you and your new wife were immediately sent to another county, a county in which your wife had no relations because the constabulary were always keen to demonstrate that there was no partiality in the dispensation of law. So it was essential that your wife then became part of the policing family. And even today, there are groups of men of the same class who would have reunions whether it be a 20-year reunion or recently I attended a 50-year reunion. Uh, and they come from all parts of the world. In that case, there were people from Canada and America who had found employment elsewhere, came to associate with their, their own class. Um, the whole organization was controlled from the park the headquarters, and it was a very centralized force with reports being sent to the park and instructions coming from the park. And the officer corps consisting of mostly a district inspector 
and the county inspector with, were charged with seeing and overseeing the performance of their men and the fact that they had certain duties to do and certain regulations to carry out. Very centralised, with headquarters very much at the park. There was a band developed at the park and there was a reserve force developed at the park which in terms of policing in Ireland was very essential in that they could dispense groups of men from the reserve out to troubled parts. The standards were maintained by these uh, periodic reports uh, and there were a tremendous number of handwritten records, some of which are retained by the museum that we have in the north and each report had to be signed by the district inspector and eventually by the county inspector and he required to have a tick, as it was called, to show that he did attend and carry out his functions. Um, he conducted schools to examine the men that they had an understanding of the law and of course being clever men they always anticipated what the district inspector's pet subject was and always, well, generally performed all right. And there were reports on how they behaved and that uh, was relayed if they were appearing for promotion. So policing uh, controlled by Dublin but I want to look at, and I know some of my colleagues will look at other layers, I want to look at policing in the north. Policing in the north was always different because we are a different people. You mightn't agree with me, but maybe after you've heard what I say, you might begin to agree with me. Uh, because of our closeness to Scotland, we were invaded and had a great interchanged by the communities in the north Scotland. My surname, MacDonald, spelt D-O-N-A-L-D, the original. Some of the people in County Antrim, which were part of my clan, are MacDonnells, but they're the lesser breed. <laughs> uh, we controlled the Western Isles, and unlike many Scots people, my forebearers came not as planted people, but we came as gallow glass to help the Irish fight when you couldn't quite hack it. Uh, and therefore, if you look at the map of Ireland from Fairhead and Antrim to Mizzenhead and Cork, you will find groups of MacDonalds stretched right down the island, normally at the sites of battles where the gallow glass weighed in and help win or lose a local battle. They invariably met some of the local ladies and married them. And the ladies generally didn't want to leave their mammies, so the men stayed. And you have this right the way down. So I have McDonald's who are friends of mine, but not related, other than when you go right the way back. So this, uh, we are, uh, I think, 12 miles from Cushendon in County Antrim, 
to across to Scotland. And that very closeness uh, led to some great strengths in our communities, but also has led to some great weaknesses. And really what made policing different in the North was sectarianism. And I will begin to trace the basis of my view of how that developed in Ireland. Um, and we go right the way back to 1607. People are quite keen in Ireland in quoting dates. Uh, 1916, the period of remembrance. 1922, the formation of Angardashir Corner and the RUC. The nearest date that's important to me, apart from 1607, is 1608. Does anybody know what the importance of 1608 is? It's the granting of the first license to Bushmills Distillery <laughs> for the production of good, of good Irish whiskey. Very important. Um, so, uh, 1607 was really the flight of the earls. Uh, there are many uh, theories about why they left, but they did go, and the end of Gaelic Ireland was upon us. Uh, the English then, uh, in an attempt to subjugate Ireland, engaged in plantation, but they, there was an earlier plan uh, where there were two gentlemen uh, from Scotland who are still well known and represented their families, one in County Down and one in County Tyrone, the Hamiltons and the Montgomerys, described as two cunning Scotsmen who persuaded Con O'Neill, the Lord of Clandyboy, into signing over his lands, the poor man uh, <coughs> rather like the Escabaja, and uh, was a victim, and he signed over. Uh, O'Neill has been described as drunken, dis uh, dissolute, and ignorant of English law, and had committed a minor offence, but was persuaded that that could leave the hanging if he didn't sign over. So, he signed over his lands, which extended from County Antrim to County Down, and he, in fact, died later and is buried in an unmarked grave near Hollywood. The new lords of Clandyboy then brought in, because they were Scotsmen, brought in tenants from Scotland and divided out the land. But if Montgomery and Hamilton were far from being scrupulous in their business methods, they, according to some historians, were able and energetic colonizers. Their lands were waste and depopulated when they took possession, but they soon flourished and they brought in stock, they planted, they built houses, they developed towns, and they brought in their strong Protestant ethic into uh, the, the north. And within a generation, both countries had been transformed in population and in the way of life. In short, we were 
in the north an extension of the Scottish townlands. The religious outlook of these people was mainly Calvinists. They brought with them ministers of their own faith and formed communities that eventually evolved into the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And I hope I don't offend some of my uh, Presbyterian brethren, but they always say when the Presbyterians gather, the first thing they do is they form the first Presbyterian church, the second Presbyterian church, and subdivide it as far as they can. Um, 200 years later, uh, in the 1790s, a town built by trade and industry that was Belfast. Industry uh, mostly uh, created and managed by the settlers. And indeed, the political movement that linked Antrim and Down with the republics in France and in the United States, because these Presbyterians had their own minds made up. And they, for example, uh, with the French Revolution, they celebrated the French Revolution and toasted to Lafayette and others. Uh, and they studied Paine's, the great book, The Rights of Man. These Presbyterian Ulster men formed very largely the Society of United Irishmen, and in the 1798 rebellion, fought alongside their Catholic neighbors for national independence and political democracy. Their heroism in the rising is a matter of history. Their martyrs included merchants from Belfast, farmers from Antrim and Down, and their own clergymen. Altogether, 30 Presbyterian ministers were accused of taking part in the rebellion. Three were hanged, five fled either to America or to France, and at least seven were sent to prison, and four were transported into exile to the penal settlements. In Belfast, six of the Presbyterian rebel leaders, including Henry Joy McCracken, was the best known of them all, were executed. Yet within two generations following the 98, the majority of people in Ulster had completely abandoned their revolutionary principles. They embraced the politics of the Tory and developed a deep-rooted antipathy towards their Catholic neighbours. This transformation of an entire population is one of the most disturbing facts for me in Irish history. The change, however, didn't come suddenly. For many years, the rebellion in Belfast, prior to the rebellion, remained a liberal town until as late as 1830. There was enough goodwill and friendliness between Catholics and Protestants to astonish even the most enlightened ecumenist today. And to illustrate this, in 1784, when Father Hugh O'Donnell, an Irish Catholic priest, educated in Salamanca, built Belfast's first Catholic church in St Mary's Chapel Lane, the Catholics numbered a mere 13 
hundred out of a total of 15,000 citizens. But the Protestants overwhelmed O'Donnell with their generous subscriptions to his building fund. William Bristow, Episcopalian vicar of Belfast, paid for the pulpit in St Mary's out of his own pocket. The day when St Mary's was opened, Sunday the 30th of May 1784, was long remembered in Belfast. Captain, Captain Waddell Cunningham, an officer in the Irish Volunteers, arranged a parade of his own men in full uniform. And when Father O'Donnell arrived to say Mass, they formed into a guard of honour for his reception. At least half of the congregation in church that morning were Protestants. A few days later, Father O'Donnell thanked many of his Protestant and Presbyterian friends in a letter to Tyndall's Mercury, one of the, the local newspapers. The RC Congregation of Belfast returned their grateful acknowledgement to Belfast First Volunteers, to the Belfast Volunteer Company and to the inhabitants of large for so generously enabling them to erect a handsome edifice for the celebration of their divine service. They know not in what adequate terms to express their feelings, excited by the attendance of so respectable a Protestant audience on that Sunday. That gives you a flavour of what happened in Belfast at that particular period. One view is that the rebellion of 1798 destroyed goodwill between Belfast Catholics and Protestants. History, however, tells us tolerance survived the rebellion, and even after the turn of the 20th century, when the Catholic population had risen to 4,000 and needed another church, the Protestants were again ready to help. Indeed, help came from the most unlikely people, Lord Donegal, who was the great landlord of Belfast, owned the land on which uh, Belfast was built, leased to Father O'Donnell a site in Upper Donegal Street, where the second church, St. Patrick's, was built. And St. Patrick's Church, for those of you who read about the North, is now a flashpoint. Even more surprising, Lord Castlereagh, deadly enemy of the Republican, uh, Republicans, an instigator of an act of parliament which abolished Ireland's own parliament, gave a hundred guineas towards the fund for building the new church. In 1812, Hugh O'Donnell retired from parish work and handed over his responsibilities for, to Father William Crawley, a Maynooth professor who completed the building of St. Patrick's. In 1825, when Crawley was appointed Bishop of Down and Connor. The Protestants of Belfast rejoiced. The new bishop gave a dinner in Ward's Hotel, where the company invited to join him consisted of 250 gentlemen, including nearly all the principal merchants and ministers of Belfast. A few days later, the same Protestant gentlemen, returning the compliment, invited Bishop Crawley to be their guest. It appears it was reported to have been 
the last public evidence of liberalism once characteristic of Belfast, you may find that strange, but that's what was reported, but which was already on the wane before the forces of reaction. There is, however, one further incident worth mentioning. In 1831, when the small Catholic community in Ballymacarrett in the east of the city, uh, beyond the River Ligon, opened their new church in Matthews, many of the local Protestants attended the first Mass and subscribed generously to the funds. St. Matthews is now in East Belfast, another flashpoint. A few years before uh, this, the Committee of the Belfast Charitable Society had appointed two of its members, Robert Stevenson and James Montford, to wait on some re respectable Roman Catholics of their own, of their town, in order to know why their congregation contributed nothing to the society and to inform them that we make no distinction of religion in our distributions. It was for tolerance and liberalism, which was the, the best of the, the Northern Presbyterians sought to uphold in the dark days following the defeat of the United Irishmen, but they fought a losing battle. During the 1820s, the struggle for the soul of dissenting Ulster continued with great intensity within the Presbyterian Church. The Presbyterians then, as today, are the biggest religious denomination outside the RCs. Uninfluenced by the Orange Orders, as they were in 98, and allied to their Catholic countrymen, they could have transformed Ulster, if not the whole of Ireland. There were two, again, divisions in Presbyterianism. The difference on the surface seemed to be ideological. Two men, Henry Cook and Henry Montgomery, were the leading people. Cook insisted on strict discipline and conformity based on the total acceptance of the Westminster Confession of Faith, faith whereas Montgomery was an avowed liberal and he rejected the Westminster Confession description of the Pope as the Antichrist. Behind these faith convictions, there was also a political struggle and as a struggle continued for the leadership of the Presbyterians. Cook was a Tory, and coming from the Calvinist wing, was ultra-conservative in outlook and inclined and inclination. Cook feared and acted in the, for the United Irishmen and in all they stood for. What happened in the end was the Calvinists one out, and in the tradition of the Presbyterians, the other man left, and he founded the non-subscribing Presbyterian Church. Cook became the leader of a group, a, a group of young conservatives, ending the influence of liberals. 
The Orange Order was vital to Cook's campaign and had a resurgence in both numbers and influence by the 1830s. By allying himself to the landlord class as well as the working class, it formed a bulwark against liberalism. The stage now set for the long period of religious and persecution and sectarianism with its place enshrined, particularly in Belfast, but did show in other parts, in other towns. Uh, T.J. Campbell wrote in his 50 Years of Ulster, Dr. Henry Cook in the first half of the 19th century was the framer of sectarianism in the politics of Ulster. Before Cook's day, sectarian riots were unknown in Belfast. All was changed and there follow with great regularity riots in Belfast. Believe it or not, the first in 1835, 1857, 1864, 1886, and 1898, as well as others in 1843, 1880, and in 1884, and indeed continued right through from 69 to 2001, and indeed 2013, if you've been reading the press recently. The areas in which these riots occurred are those areas in which the riots currently contain. Sandy Row, Shankill, Brown Square, the Lower Falls, Brickfields, was at the Lower Falls, Barrack Street and the Pound. Barrack Street still exists, the Pound only no longer exists, it was redeveloped. The people lived and worked in these areas the start of divided communities living separately, working separately. This is also against the pressure being built, increasing Catholic population. In 1784, Catholics numbered 1,300, as I've said, but by 1840, there were 70,000. So an increasing number, and if you think about it, small groups of people under pressure don't react particularly well. Around this time also, the Catholic Church in Europe was experiencing a great renewal. The Jesuit order had been reconstituted, and following the French Revolution, a large number of new saints were created. This major pressure was also felt in Northern Ireland, and Henry Cook declared in his opposition that Catholics were greatly inferior in point of education. They are greatly inferior generally. They put up with less comfort, both in point of food and dress. Pressure on minorities does not bring out the best of our people. So in 1892, when Gladstone was preparing the second Home Rule Bill, again there was witnessed disorder. Catholic men in employment were driven out from their place of employment, in the shipyards particularly, and in the mills, 
This established a pattern which was repeated right through to today, or to 2001. As an indication of the extent of the trouble in 1886, with both sides, both sides rioting, and the police, as usual, in the middle, 371 police officers were injured, 31 public houses were looted. For some 12 months, the courts dealt with compensation and 442 arrests which were made. I hop now to this year, 2013, with the demonstrations and the Parades Commission forbidding the Orange men returning to uh, up the Crumlin Road. Uh, they were held up and on the Woodvale Road. There were 75 arrests. 70 officers were injured and a week of rioting appeared. Both communities attacked each other, sometimes because of rumours caused by panic, sometimes because of exaggerated reports of rioting in the opposite community, but in my view, always because of pressure. And our problems is one of minorities, always conscious of the pressures of their position, and has this position changed today? In fact, it has been recurring and reported at the policing board this year, this week, there were 689 officers injured in the last nine months, and the costs associated with policing was £28 million. Are we really right in the head when everybody is so short of money that we can spend money like this? The only people who have benefited are those police officers who have managed to avoid hurt and their overtime bill is enormous. I'm told that my colleagues in Garda Siakono, uh, overtime is an unknown factor. If you're looking for a transfer, we're looking to recruit. Think about it, but think well about it because you're dealing with a different problem here. Um, so we have had, indeed from 1835 to 2013, 178 years of rioting. We haven't improved, and in spite of the fact that we should learn from history, I think we have all become captives of our history. We have even invited Mr. Haas, a former American diplomat, to try and help us with our problems following um, the success they had with the peace talks that we had. But we're 15 years past that, and we really haven't learned. Our peace has improved, but is imperfect. And one lot blame the other lot. 
provocation is high on the agenda. And if you look in County Tyrone a few weeks back, when the remnants of the provisional IRA were demonstrating, if you looked at how they behaved and how their bands and hangers-on turned out in paramilitary uniform and flags flying, if they had changed to more flamboyant uniforms, they could have been orange men. But they, at least the orange men know how to march properly. They have a, they have a very peculiar shuffle. But yet, when the Orange Order or the Royal Black Preceptory paraded past St. Patrick's Church, uh, Roman Catholic Church, they insisted, in spite of a ban of the Parades Commission, on playing the sash. And if you've ever heard one of the Orange bands, known locally as Kick the Pope bands, they hammer hell out of the drums. I mean, it is provocation, and I'm sorry, my good friends in the Orange Order haven't had the backbone to discipline the bands because the bands depend on the Orange Order for their income, and the Orange Order depend on the bands for providing the music. I use the term loosely. Uh, but they need to discipline them. There is a an anti-feeling against the Parades Commission because the Parades Commission set up a mixed group. A former member of the Orange Order is one of their leading members. Um, they are charged with making a decision. They make a decision if it doesn't prove to be acceptable to one crowd or the other. That's the basis for riots. Um, Last year in Ardoin, when the police were trying again to hold the middle line, they were fired on by some of the residents of Ardoin. And again, there are two groups in Ardoin. There are those who would support Sinn Féin, and there are those who would support the dissidents, and neither will agree. God help George Haas when he has to sort it out. I'm thinking of making my, peop my paper available to him to show him what he has to put up with. That's what m makes policing so very difficult in the North, in spite of the fact that we have a national, we had a national police force. Uh, the RUC uh, grew out of the RIC, and in fact, the RUC was also following the Patton Report, was merged into the Police Service of Northern Ireland. And that indeed was part of a political process as the RIC were part of the political process. The RIC didn't do as well as the RUC. Their police federation were better negotiators. The RIC had 12 added years. It is reported that an assistant chief constable, his or her going away present was half a million pounds as well as their pension. A substantial sum of money, but the Brits think that everything can be solved by throwing money at it. I, I, I'm sorry, uh, it has said 
that the sun never sat on the British Empire when it was in its full flight. Do you know why? Because when the sun set, you couldn't trust a Brit politician. <laughs> Sorry, I'll leave it to you. If you have any questions, I'll try and deal with them, but it'll be my view you will get. <laughs> Internal records of uh, communication in the RIC yes. in the North Ireland. Yes. Is there some way of looking at them? Yes. You can make... Uh, Jim Hurley, he told me, I was looking for someone in queue, and he told me that none existed. Well, there, it depends on what you're looking for. The, a lot of the records were transferred to Q, and, uh, and there are basic records of individual service. If they have had uh, a good mark for good policing, or if they have been fined for whatever, the details of those subfiles isn't available. But there are many other records. If you ring the police museum at Brooklyn Knock, they will accommodate you. You have to make an appointment because you're in a very secure location, but they'll do their best to sort you out. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you very much.